Hello, and welcome to Profiles, a program that introduces interesting people from Indiana, the United States, and the world to WFIU listeners. I'm Owen Johnson. Our guest on this occasion is Tim Nickens, editor of editorials at the Tampa Bay Times, and more significantly, a 2013 winner of the Pulitzer Prize. Tim, welcome to Profiles. Thanks. Glad to be here. You grew up in southern Indiana and were already doing journalism in high school. What was it that turned you on to journalism? Well, like most kids in the junior high school and high school, I really wanted to be an NFL linebacker. (laughs) But it became pretty clear even at that age that I wasn't going to be big enough uh, to do anything like that. So then like most uh, boys that thought, well, if you can't uh, play, then maybe you could be a sports writer. And so playing for the Red Devils turned out to be a dream that wasn't realized. No, it, that just didn't work out. I didn't grow enough, and uh, I was getting a little too beat up for that. For more than 65 years, journalists like you have participated in the High School Journalism Institute at Indiana University. Um, what did you learn when you attended that institute? I learned a lot. I, I came actually twice, uh, once after my sophomore year and once after my junior year. And those were really transformative because you had kids there from all over the state that shared the same passion for journalism and were also really good. And so you could also test your skills and find out, well, yeah, I might be able to do this. You came to IU at a time that some people might refer to as a a golden age of the School of Journalism at Indiana. Um, When you think of the people, um, Tom French – Uh, also won a Pulitzer Prize. Uh, You have Andy Hall, who is director of the Investigative Journalism Center at the University of Wisconsin. Was there something special about the school at that time? Well, if you wanted to be a journalist and you grew up in Indiana, you wanted to go to Indiana University. And to be able to come to Indiana and to uh, be in uh, journalism there was, was a big deal. So, yes, I, I think it was probably a culmination of things. It sure, certainly wasn't anything planned, but I, uh, we were fortunate the way it worked out. What was the more significant influence, the School of Journalism or the student newspaper, the Indiana Daily Student? Well, it was the School of Journalism initially because I'd gone to the Journalism Institute and Mary Benedict then, uh, who was one of the uh, best well-known professors at the School of Journalism, ran the uh, Journalism Institute for years. And so she had the enthusiasm and drive, and I really wanted to come to IU, and I wanted to learn from her. And so that really was uh, uh, the beginning, I think. When did you start on the on the newspaper? Well, I wait, I actually waited for a while. I, I came I, uh, in the fall of 1977. And at that time, there weren't a lot of folks that went in to the daily student right off the bat in their first semester. And some of the some of the advice was get your feet on the ground first. Learn how IU works. Learn how to take college courses and, and then maybe ease your way in because they'd seen too many people sort of start as freshmen and then maybe flame out. Hmm. Can you talk a little bit about your IDS experience? Sure. It The IDS is a wonderful place, but it can be intimidating. So when I first went in, the first time, I didn't stay long. Uh, I went in. I had a little bit of experience. Uh, I was assigned some beats, I think, the law school and uh, the School of Public Environmental uh, Affairs. And I thought, yeah, I can do that. And uh, the editor, uh, my direct editor at the time, then would, would send me notes, say the next day, well, where's your story? And the second day, well, where is your story? And I thought, I don't think I can do this. And I left him a note, and I said – I, I don't think I'm ready for this. You're going to have to find somebody else. So the first time didn't last but maybe a week and no stories. So what brought you back? Well, I came back. Uh, I actually dropped out of uh, IU for a little bit there in the spring of 1978 because I wasn't sure that I could do it. I wasn't sure I could do uh, college uh, coursework at the level that I was accustomed to in high school. And so uh, I left uh, right before the blizzard of 78. <laughs> And I uh, went back to Jeffersonville and looked for a job and drove a truck for a little bit and thought, well, this is not uh, much of a career. And I was fortunate enough to uh, go to work for the Jeffersonville Evening News, which is the daily afternoon paper there, and cover high school sports for a while and rekindled my love for journalism and also realized I, I got to go back to college and I got to go back to IU. 
So I came back in 1979 and started working at the Indiana Daily Student then, and, uh, and it went much better that time. It's been called, I think, a profession and a fraternity. Which part is more important? I don't really think you could separate one from the other. You know, at, the, at that time, there weren't many uh, folks that were in uh, fraternities or sororities and work at the IDS because the IDS was your, was your uh, grounding point. Uh, and it was sort of the fraternity for me. And that's where a lot of my lifelong friends uh, were made and uh, those relationships were formed that I still have today. Eventually, you became editor. Why did you want to be editor rather than a reporter? Well, I always thought it would be fun to run the place. And I actually tried to get it uh, twice, and uh, Andy Hall, who you mentioned earlier, uh, uh, beat me the first time in the in the fall of uh, 1980 for the, for the spring in 1981. And uh, at the time, I thought, well, maybe that's it. And I stayed another semester, though, and then another semester, and did some more reporting and did some other jobs, and decided, you know, I, I really don't want to leave Indiana University without trying to be the editor-in-chief of the Daily Student. And so I, I had just a little coursework to finish up, and so I ran again and was the editor in the spring of 82. And normally, I think when you apply to be editor, you have to write a statement with some goals. Do you remember at all what your goals were? I remember having to write the statement. I don't quite remember what was in it. And of course, to be a candidate for the uh, editor of the Daily Student, you have to go before the Publications Board, which is a, a group of professionals, and be uh, interviewed. And I and I remember that process uh, uh, pretty well. And so there were some tough questions, and uh, you were lucky to survive that. What did you learn from the experience of being editor? Well, you have a lot of decisions to make. And you learn that with personnel sometimes, even when you're in college, those can be your friends but you still have some decisions sometimes that have to go beyond friendship as far as what positions people are going to hold and how to edit stories and where stories are going to be and who's going to be on the front page and that sort of thing. And I also learned a lot about news judgment and, and what stories to place where and that sort of thing. And third, I would say that I learned a lot about the ethical part of journalism and, and where you're going to draw the line on some things you're going to do and some things you're not going to do. Do you learn the lessons from your fellow students? Is that What's going on there? You learn some from your fellow students and you learn things from just uh, the, the pace of the news. A couple of things that happened that uh, semester, one was there was a tuition increase uh, that, that students were upset about and we were trying to think about how uh, editorially to uh, deal with that. And back in those days, you couldn't run color uh, very often in the IDS because we didn't have the money for color reproduction. And uh, so we decided, though, yellow armbands, and, and we made a strip of uh, yellow down the side of the front page and encouraged those people to, to wear them at the uh, at Little 500 Bicycle Race. Uh, so, that, so that was one, uh, one example. Did you have career goals when you left IU, what you wanted to accomplish in your career? I just wanted to be good. I, I wanted to be the best that I could. And I wanted to be a reporter and write interesting stories and go do fun things. I didn't really want to sit behind a desk, and I didn't want to carry a briefcase around. And I, and I wanted to try to make a difference. Your first job was at the Fort Wayne Journal-Gazette. Craig Klugman, another Indiana University graduate, became editor that same year. Um, what did you do there? I did a little bit of everything. We had a state desk there of two or three reporters. And so I initially started with that, and we would drive around to some of these rural counties outside Fort Wayne and look for stories. And we would go to small towns like Huntington and Wabash and Auburn and Angola up there in northeast Indiana and uh, write some stories. And, and uh, I, would, I would interview some farmers and do some things like that. What, what was the transition like? I mean, journalism here? At, at IU was, I won't call it just a hobby, but it was part-time in the sense that you were also a, a student. What kind of reaction did you have doing journalism as a full-time job? 
Well, I loved it because then you you didn't have to worry about that classwork anymore, <laughs> and you could actually do it 24-7 if you wanted to, and I did want to. And so you could work as many hours as you wanted to and work and try to find the best stories you could, and, and you didn't have to worry about having to drop everything to, to go to that next class. So I, I thought that was just great. I was making uh, – I was hired for uh, 14800 a year. And uh, I thought, well, I can probably uh, live on that for a while, and then I did. A year later, you went to what was then called the St. Petersburg Times. Can you tell us something about the long IU connection with the with the Times? Well, the Times in St. Petersburg has a long connection with Indiana University, primarily through the Nelson Pointer family, because Nelson Pointer had a very long connection here, obviously, with Indiana University. And his uh, family owned the St. Petersburg Times after owning a string of newspapers in, in Indiana. So that sort of pointer connection had had lasted uh, for decades. And, of course, when I started here in Indiana in the fall of 77, even Nelson Pointer was still alive. So it had lasted that long. And then after he died in, uh, in the late 70s, about a year or so later, though it was still here in terms of the Pointer Scholarship, which still exists now, and that was a big deal. And so there was sort of a pipeline there, and uh, for a lot of years, the St. Petersburg Times was able to get the best best and brightest uh, right out of college from uh, Indiana. You started out there um, at St. Pete as a city reporter covering Clearwater and St. Petersburg, crime reporter as well. How much did you notice that this was a step up from Fort Wayne? Well, it was a lot bigger place. So they had a lot more reporters and a lot more editors, a lot of regional editions, which is where I started in the Clearwater Bureau, where they we were putting out our own, basically our own mini newspaper within a newspaper um, every day. And the Times also had a different way of writing because – it was one of the pioneers in narrative journalism and in non-traditional leads where you would lure the reader into it. And it wasn't necessarily the old uh, inverted pyramid style where it was straight ahead uh, news. So it was a different type of writing, which was liberating, but also a lot uh, scary because you weren't necessarily – I certainly wasn't an expert in how, how to do that. Well, what was the source of that of that kind of focus? Because it it's something that these days many newspapers are moving toward. Uh, they were trendsetters in that, and I think it had to do with the interests of the editors through through time. And and uh, also, St. Petersburg, particularly at that time, was a smaller place. It wasn't uh, Tampa Bay wasn't a huge urban area necessarily that it was in in the in the seventies and and even in the early eighties. And so there wasn't a lot of breaking news. So I think part of that uh, was out of necessity that. Uh, you not, since you didn't have a lot of hardcore news like you'd have in bigger cities, they had to have writers that were able to tell good stories. Hmm. After a few years at that beginning position, you went to the State House in Tallahassee. Is that something you wanted to do or they wanted you to do? Oh, I wanted to do it. Why? Well, at the time, there was a, a path for government reporters and beat reporters that still is true today in a lot of papers where you started off with smaller government beats at city halls and, and county courthouses. And uh, then to get to the state capitol at most newspapers would be a, a pretty significant accomplishment. And, of course, in in Florida, Tallahassee ha- had at the time a huge press corps. It was quite competitive and there were a lot of papers and a lot of good papers in Florida. So to be able to go there for the St. Petersburg Times was a big deal. And so I was thrilled when I was able to get to go there in uh, 1987. Did you find it difficult to penetrate Florida politics as an outsider? Not so much as an outsider, but I thought I was pretty decent as a reporter when I went to Tallahassee. And I found out, of course, that there were a lot better political reporters around than than uh, I was, and that the and that uh, the state capitol is a lot more political with a lot more agendas than there are at uh, city halls around uh, the St. Petersburg area. So it was a steep learning curve, but I but I loved it because the the pace and the issues. I I, I often say I like there are some reporters that like politics more than policy, and some that like 
the policy and don't care much for the politics. I actually like the intersection of the two because one drives the other. You talk about a steep learning curve. Did you have people there who took you under their wing or were you just observing their work both written and in action? Both. But I, I had a – I worked for a bureau chief uh, named Lucy Morgan who is a legend in Florida and a Pulitzer Prize winner herself. And uh, Lucy, uh, I don't believe, had ever taken a journalism class. But she was about 10 years older than me and already a very accomplished investigative reporter who knew how to deal with legislators and lobbyists and to write hard-hitting stories but yet see them right next to the morning look them right in the eye and share a joke with them. Hmm. You uh, went from there to the Miami Herald. I don't know whether you call that an enemy newspaper what pulled you away? Well, at the time, they were enemy because they were uh, – we were the top two largest papers in uh, Florida and we were uh, very competitive. Uh, but in Tallahassee, there's a press center uh, where the newspapers are all located and the Herald and the Times were actually on the same floor. And at that time, I'd been in Tallahassee for about three years and I was – also a little bit antsy. I'd been at the St. Petersburg Times in for about six. So I was looked 30 years old and kind of looking around and thinking, well, I wonder how somebody else does it. And at that time, the Herald was actually bigger than the Times. Of course, that's no longer the case. And they had a lot of other bureaus outside, inside and outside Florida. And it was easy when they had an opening in the Tallahassee Bureau and they approached me to just put my stuff in a cardboard box and walk down the hall. We didn't have to move. We didn't have to go uh, change anything. We just showed up in a different office in the same building uh, in a couple of weeks. But that's not usual, is it? Most It seems to me so many people who go to the St. Petersburg Times, that's their newspaper for life. That's not usual. Uh, what usually happened back then though was that uh, a lot of the good a lot of the best hotshot reporters would not stay there for life the, the tendency back then was to leave after after a few years and you, they would often go to the Washington Post the New York Times the Philadelphia Inquirer was very highly thought of back then so there were pipelines to Wall Street Journal uh, to different papers back then so a lot of times when you left you went to those sort of papers and you went out of state so it was a bit frowned upon to just walk down the hall and go to the competition. You were there for five years and then went back to the to the Times as an editorial writer, if I'm not mistaken. I went back to the Times. I'd been there five years, and by then I'd been there about nine years in Tallahassee. And Tallahassee is a wonderful, small southern town, gorgeous capital with live oak trees all around. But it can be a little bit claustrophobic. And once you've been there that long, about eight or nine or ten years as a reporter, you start looking around and you realize, well, I'm either going to be here the rest of my life covering the same thing or I'm going to jump the fence and wind up uh, working for a politician if I don't get out of here pretty soon. <laughs> so I'd had my fill of uh, legislative sessions that up close, and uh, I was looking for a way to get back to St. Petersburg, frankly. It was a wonderful place to live. We'd had two young daughters by then. And uh, I was eager to get back to St. Petersburg Times. And editorial writing was, what was well, open? And that happened to be the thing uh, that popped up. I, I had talked to them uh, very informally about a job or two uh, in that time period that just didn't seem to be the right fit on the news side. And uh, one day the editorial page editor called me up out of the blue, who I did not know, and asked if I knew anybody that might be interested in joining the editorial board. And I said, well, I don't know. I'll look around. I'll, I'll ask and I'll get back to you. And I hung up and uh, thought, well, that was kind of an odd call. And I walked down to the Times Bureau and I said, hey, I just got this strange call. Was that meant for me? And and they said, well, yes, you idiot. And we had them call you. You're, <laughs> that was supposed to you and you're supposed to say yes. So I called him back and uh, talked to him, and I said, well, yeah, I'd be glad to try that. And uh, so I went back as an editorial writer. And three years later, just in time for the 2000 presidential election, you became political editor. Start before the 2000 year. Florida politics are difficult to understand, to cover. They're very close. Does that present extra challenges? 
it does exp- present extra challenges because the, the elections are not foregone conclusions. They were at one time when the de- when it was a one-party state and Democrats control everything. Uh, but by that time, it had become a, a two-party state. And uh, so I had been fortunate when I was in Tallahassee to cover uh, Lawton Childs, who had been a senator uh, from Florida for 18 years and retired and come back and run for governor in 1990. And I covered that campaign and then in 1994, uh, Jeb Bush arrived on the scene, and he run, ran against Childs. And I uh, was fortunate enough to cover that campaign, and that was one of the closest races for, uh, for governor that Florida ever had. So by the time then that I uh, was named political editor at the St. Petersburg Times in 1998, I, I had a pretty good grounding in, in state politics uh, to use as a launching pad. And so 1998 uh, was the Jeb Bush reelection, and I covered that. And then uh, starting about 1999, it was time to learn how to cover a national campaign because I had not covered a national campaign before. And I was really interested in that and looking forward to going to the Iowa caucuses and the New Hampshire primary and stuff like that. How, how much of a staff did you have to to supervise? Well, at the St. Petersburg Times, the political editor is actually a writing job. So you had input in what in, in, in a good amount of influence and in what stories we were going to cover and what, what candidates we were going to focus on. But you're out reporting and writing and somebody else is in, in the office is doing the editing and, and uh, that sort of thing. So uh, I think in uh, 2000, I counted up that between the campaign and then, of course, the, the recount, uh, I, w- I was gone more than 100 days that year. So that was a, that was a once-in-a-lifetime experience. When did you realize that the 2000 election and its results were going to be um, so complicated? Well, you know, election eve, I had been out the last 10 days of the campaign with George W. Bush. And we had I had flown to Austin and gotten on the plane, the campaign plane, and we had made a, a trek that went through Albuquerque and California and then uh, up to Portland, Oregon and went across the top of the, the country and then hit some swing states, I, I think, if I recall, in Pennsylvania and then came back down to Florida the weekend before the election. And then I left them the day be- the day before the election. But I, I had a feeling from what reports we were getting from the Gore camp that, that Gore was closing the gap. And both nationally and in Florida. So I can remember early on on election night, you know, in newsrooms, a lot of times they have a little pool and who's, who, who thinks who's going to win. And the conventional wisdom was Bush was going to win. But I, I said, you know, I, I think Al Gore is going to pull this out in a squeaker and I think he might win Florida. And I can remember the guy looking at me like I'm crazy, but I'm thinking I, I just feel a little surge out there that you can only feel when you're out on the campaign trail and you can't feel when you're sitting in the newsroom. So – I, I knew, though, that, uh, of course, the, the, the counts came in and the, the calls were coming back and forth. And uh, I rewrote uh, what I was writing that <laughs> night about two or three times. And we were about ready to leave uh, the office at about two or three o'clock in the morning when that when uh, before it really hit the national news, we, we still had a, uh, a reporter, of course, in, in Tallahassee in the elections office. And we were just about literally packing up, ready to go home. And she called up and she said, you know, this thing is moving. This vote is getting closer and closer. And we said, uh-oh, and we stayed. And, uh, of course, it did get closer and closer. And we wound up putting out a special edition uh, that, that, that early that Wednesday morning to say it was basically tied. Did you then have to kind of rethink what you were going to do over the next – well, yeah, I was I was ready for a vacation. You know, I mean, political reporters they cover the election, and uh, you do a little bit of wrap up the next day, and then you could basically disappear. And and instead, there were about thirty five more days of uh, of uh, work uh, to be done, and none of us, of course, had any idea uh, what what we were getting into. Let's take a break here and listen to some music. Thunder Road, I think, is what you would like to hear. And what's the nature of your love affair with Bruce Springsteen? Well, I first saw him in 1978 in Louisville, Kentucky, as he was touring on the Darkness of the Edge of Town tour. And uh, he was unlike anybody I'd I'd seen uh, before or since. And uh, so I've just been a fan ever since then. 
screen door slams Mary's dress sweeps Like a vision she dances across the porch as the radio plays Roy Orbison singing for the lonely Hey, that's me and I want you only Don't turn me home again I just can't face myself Inside, darling, you know just what I'm here for So you're scared and you're thinking that maybe we ain't that young anymore That was Thunder Road by Bruce Springsteen, music chosen by our guest on Profiles today, Tim Nickens, the editor of editorials at the Tampa Bay Times, the 35th winner of the Pulitzer Prize from IU's School of Journalism. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. The year after the election, you became Metro Editor and in 2003 Assistant Managing Editor. And if the political editor didn't supervise reporters, those positions, that must have been part of the job. That was a lot of the part of the job. I, I had uh, a number of editors there under me and uh, I think um, more than 50 uh, reporters or so. Uh, spread out in several different offices. Was it as challenging as when you had been editor of the Indiana Daily Student? (laughs) It was challenging. Uh, It was a lot of fun because I also applied some of those things that I I had done at the IDS. You know, I I tell people now and young people now, if you get a chance to be an editor at 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 the Daily Student, you ought to take it because you don't know when the next time will come around where somebody's going to let you run something. And uh, so me, it took a little while, but then I finally got a chance to, to uh, put a similar imprint on a, on a newspaper and see what it was like to actually direct the coverage. It's always been interesting to me the, the, the kind of comparison or contrast between being a reporter and being an editor. Um, Ernie Pyle whose name graces the building in which the School of Journalism is located, uh, served three years as managing editor. But uh, from all accounts, he hated the job. Is there a difference in your feeling about the two jobs? There is a lot of difference. I mean, as a a reporter, you you have the luxury of just focusing on your own work and making your own work uh, as good as it can be and often specializing in a particular subject, whether it's politics or science or health or law, or something. Uh, as, a, as an editor or running a, helping run a newsroom, you have to be much more of a generalist, and you, you have to think about a lot of different things, about a lot of different issues about the news, how to cover it, how to write it, where to put it, and also manage people. And to that, I guess we could add in the first decade of the 21st century, um, the whole nature of journalism was changing. The whole nature uh, was changing, and you had to react a lot faster uh, than you could in the uh, in the older days. And the other thing about uh, St. Petersburg and Tampa is, of course, that that is still a two newspaper uh, community, and so there is a lot of competition, and you you need to be uh, first. How do you be first? Well, it's redefined itself over the years. You know, of course. Uh, when I was originally reporting, if you were first the next morning, you you were the one with the scoop. And now you you got you have to be first on the website or first to tweet it to really uh, be the one to take claim for breaking any news. This gets us, I think, into this area of the technology and uh, being up to date, knowing how to do all these things. There are much greater expectations about what a reporter is able to do. You presumably learned that on the job. Is that the best way to do it or should it be taught in schools of journalism? Well, you have to teach that in schools of journalism because the job has changed so much. And I think journalism schools have a difficult challenge because you still need the basic skills that I learned here in the 1970s and the 1980s. You need to know how to write. You need to have good news judgment. You need to have good ethics. Uh, but now you have to spread that over many different platforms than than what we talked about back then, and you have to you have to be able to to manage social media, and you have to be able to take pictures, and you have to be able to do video if you're really going to have uh, all these different skills in your toolbox to be uh, the most versatile reporter and the most uh, 
uh, eligible one to be hired. Do we lose something in, in journalism in that respect? I just use my own experience uh, when I was in college working for a local weekly newspaper and I was writing their sports news and one week the, the editor said, we'd like you to take pictures at the same time and I found I couldn't do both jobs as well, that each of them lost something. Well, I think that is a concern and that's a challenge in newsrooms across the country because I think as they rush to manage the digital age, we have to be mindful that we're not losing the journalism skills that's particularly set journalists apart from other folks who might not be as skilled at it. What about the diminution of the numbers of people on, on the staff? What kind of a problem is that? It's a challenge. It's a challenge at a lot of newspapers, uh, including mine. Uh, we've been fortunate where we've had to make some uh, staff reductions uh, and we've had to be more efficient, but we've also maintained a commitment to quality journalism. And one of the reasons we've been able to do that is, of course, that the Tampa Bay Times is independently owned. Newspapers that are parts of chains or have been unfortunately uh, been bought by uh, uh, equity investment firms, they, they don't quite share the same commitment to the journalism values because they're more interested in the bottom line. So there has been a loss at newspapers in terms of beat coverage. I don't think there's any question about that. Is your, is your city council being covered as well as it might have been 10 years ago? Is your uh, school board being covered as much as it was 10 years ago? I, I think at a lot of newspapers, they're not able to say yes. You might Explain to our listeners, uh, you refer to the Tampa Bay Times as being independently owned, but its ownership is different from almost every other newspaper, isn't it? It is different than almost anywhere else, and we're very fortunate that. Uh, we talked about Nelson Pointer earlier, and Nelson Pointer uh, owned uh, then the St. Petersburg Times. And uh, before his death, he had decided that he had seen too many uh, newspaper uh, families uh, feud after a death over the ownership of the paper or sell the paper, and he didn't want that to happen. So in, in what is a remarkable case of generosity, uh, Nelson Pointer created a school for journalists that's now called the Pointer Institute, and he gave the newspaper to the school. So the Tampa Bay Times is owned by the Pointer Institute, which is a nonprofit school for journalists. There's some confusion out there sometimes because I can occasionally get ribbed that, well, you guys don't need to make any money. And, of course, that's a, that is not <laughs> true. <laughs> uh, the paper is a for-profit enterprise that, that needs to, uh, revenue to operate, and we need to make profit. But it is owned by, by a nonprofit uh, school for journalists. Will that system be able to survive? It should be able to survive. It, it depends on the different models we have to create. The Pointer Institute now, for example, uh, is much more aggressive in uh, seeking outside sources of revenue in terms of grants and foundations and that sort of thing and not totally re reliant on the newspaper like it once was uh, for revenue to operate the school. And the newspaper, like every other newspaper, needs to make money. It needs to, uh, it needs to be in the black. Why did it change from the St. Petersburg Times to the Tampa Bay Times? Since the St. Petersburg Times had this this gloried name, it did have a, a very valuable name in journalism and a very valuable name in the St. Petersburg community. But the fact is, is that things have changed both in journalism and in the Tampa Bay area. The Tampa the Tampa Bay area really now is one region. Uh, yes, there's Tampa and St. Petersburg, but it's one enormous me metropolitan region, and. For more than a decade, we had covered that area as one metropolitan region, and we have very aggressive news operations, not just in St. Petersburg, but also across the bay in Tampa and in a couple of rural counties north of there. So the name change was really done for a couple of reasons. One, it was to made to reflect the imprint and the coverage area that we already have. And the other reason, frankly, is for competitive purposes, because there were still some folks uh, on the other side of the bay in Tampa that think the newspaper is well-written, thinks it has a lot of news, but they want a local newspaper with Tampa in the name. And they just could not get across that name barrier. 
So it made both, I think, journalism sense and business sense to change the name of the paper to the Tampa Bay Times. Let's talk something about the the, the Pulitzer Prize competition. Uh, in 2012, you were a finalist and there was no winner. How do you have feelings about that? Well, I, my feelings were well, I wasn't too happy about it when I found out that that it happened. You know, there are, there are journalists who dream of winning the Pulitzer Prize from the time that they're at the IDS. I really wasn't one of those, to be frank about it. I didn't think that was possible either with my skills or with the sorts of things I, I covered. So I really never thought much about the Pulitzer Prize. My, my friend and uh, fellow IU alum, uh, Tom French, won one uh, in the late 90s, and, and I was thrilled for him and, and ad- admired him so much. And uh, I just didn't think that my own work was ever going to be worthy of that sort of recognition. So in 2012, uh, we often and regularly every year we would submit things uh, for the Pulitzer. And in 2012, out of the blue, we were a finalist for a series of editorials that myself and three of my colleagues uh, had written about Florida's new governor, Rick Scott, and some of the controversial policy positions he had taken. So we had found out some weeks before that they actually – that we actually were finalists. And then when uh, we found out that we didn't win was disappointing. But then to find out that, well, actually, they didn't give an award at all in, in that category took a little bit of time to get over because then when the when the awards were announced, instead of being congratulated as winners – I was actually fielding calls from Politico and some other journalists saying, well, our, our editorial page is dead because they didn't award a prize. And in fact, they haven't awarded the prize uh, uh, several times over the years for editorial writing. Do you have any idea why they didn't? No, I don't. Fortunately, the or unfortunately, the uh, the deliber- deliberations uh, uh, by the Pulitzer board are a little bit like the cardinals picking the pope. So you wait for a puff of smoke, but you don't really know what exactly the nature of the conversations were. But doesn't Tampa Bay have one of the cardinals in there? <laughs> we do have one of the cardinals, but as the Pulitzer rules require, that cardinal has to step out of the room when the conversation involves uh, their newspaper. So even though you might have somebody on the Pulitzer board, uh, when your work is considered, you don't really know exactly uh, what the reasons were or how the conversation went. We should mention to the listeners that the person we're talking about is Paul Tash, who was a 1976 graduate of Indiana University. Tell us about the series that did win the Pulitzer for you and columnist Dan Ruth. Well, in 2011, like a lot of local governments, Pinellas County, which is the county where uh, St. Petersburg is located, was undergoing a budget crunch, and they were looking for ways to save money. So in out of the blue, uh, the county commission on a four-to-three vote decided to save about $200,000 by stopping the addition of fluoride into the drinking water for about 700,000 water customers. And they initially painted it as a cost-saving measure, but then it turned out that it was a little more political and a little more ideological uh, than that. And naturally, there were news stories about it at the time, and we wrote an editorial or two criticizing it in 2011, but nothing changed and nothing happened, and so the, the uh, fluoride was taken out of the drinking water in January of 2012. Well, as we moved on to other things in the spring, Paul Tash and I continued to talk about fluoride, and, and he was particularly disturbed about it. Uh, and as more we talked about it, the more we thought, you know, this is not the right decision, that this this decision to take fluoride out of the drinking water does not reflect the moderate Midwestern values that are in Pinellas County, and it's not best for the public health. It's particularly not good for poor families who don't have access to dental health, don't take their kids regularly to the dentist. And we ought to see if we can do something about that. So we decided that we would write a series of editorials aimed at 
educating the readers and trying to get fluoride back into the drinking water. So in March of uh, 2012, we wrote the first one, the first editorial, and we had the headline on it, The Decay of Common Sense. And we started by looking at the science because I, I knew fluoride was good for you, but I just took that as an accepted fact, and I didn't know anything about the science or how it worked or what the criticisms were. And so we first brought in the opponents who had showed up at the county commission and said, well, bring us your studies and bring us your books. And they came and they brought stacks of paper and they brought books that made it sound like fluoride was fatal and the worst thing in the world and it would cause you way more health problems than doing anything good for your teeth. Did, did they use any of the arguments that were used in the 1950s that this was a communist plot? There was some talk about Agenda 21 and about this was really a, a, a devious plot by the government and uh, you, you shouldn't let the government tell you what chemicals you're going to put into your body. So there was a little bit of that. So then, though, to balance that out, we, we started with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta. And we got on the line basically the, the foremost uh, dental health per, uh, folks in the country. And we went through these uh, sorts of concerns one by one and had them bat it down. So in that first uh, editorial, uh, mainly dealt with the science and talked about those, those sorts of claims about fluoride and then had the experts bat it down. And then we went from there. So over the spring and summer, uh, we also tried to humanize it. And we talked to a number of families where this was a hardship. We went to the public health clinics in uh, the county where they do a lot of work on, on teeth for children with poor families. And we talked to mothers and grandfathers and folks that have brought their kids there. And they knew about the fluoride decision, and they weren't happy about it. And we we talked to dentists, and we got uh, some of their patients, and we talked to families that, that could tell us exactly how much then they were paying for fluoride treatments at the dentist or fluoride drops or things like that and how much it costs for their insurance. And so we had some real human voices in there as well. And then there was an election in the fall of 2012, and uh, two of the commissioners that had voted to take fluoride out of the drinking water were running against two challengers that had vowed that their first action would be to vote to put the fluoride back in the drinking water. So, of course, we recommended that those two challengers be elected and the two incumbents be defeated. And on uh, election night, of course, while we were watching the, uh, the returns for president and U.S. Senate, we were also watching those returns for county commission pretty closely. And so the two challengers won, and they were, they were two Democrats, and incidentally, that, uh, that won countywide office against two Republicans. And uh, shortly before Thanksgiving, they were sworn into office, and they voted to put uh, fluoride back into the drinking water. And uh, this March, the, the fluoride uh, went back in. Did any of the, your readers paint you as being liberals, pushing a liberal agenda? On this. Well, that wouldn't be the first time that some readers have done that with with the Times. Uh, so we we got some of that. We we more uh, had uh, some criticisms about the science because there were there were people uh, that would take academic studies and say, well, see, fluoride really causes uh, a lot of issues with with uh, bone hardening and this that and the other thing. And uh, But what you had to do is you had to look at those studies in context. And it turns out a lot of those studies are, have been done in, in other countries, not in the United States. And in those countries, the fluoride levels are far above whatever fluoride anybody in the United States is putting into the drinking water. So, of course, uh, fluoride can be bad for you if you're ingesting a, a ridiculous amounts of it, but that's not the case here. Did you make any references at all to the uh, uh, Crest toothpaste uh, tests that IU was involved in with the addition of fluoride? No, we didn't make those uh, uh, references uh, specifically. But there were a lot of people that also said, look, uh, there, there's, there's fluoride in toothpaste now and, there's, uh, and you can get fluoride in other ways. You, we don't have to have it in the drinking water. But the CDC and other experts say, well, that, that is true that there are, there, you do get fluoride from toothpaste in different places, but that you still need it in the drinking water, uh, particularly in, in, uh, in poorer neighborhoods. I think there's a more interesting issue here, 
and that has to do something with the, the if there's a separation between the editorial writing side and the news side. Some of the great American newspapers in the first half of the 20th century, uh, particularly under Pulitzer and Hearst, engaged in these in crusades to accomplish a certain kind of policy. Uh, some people these days say that a newspaper should be objective and shouldn't take sides. To what degree did the Tampa Bay Times go out and seek an issue and push it not only in the editorial columns but in news columns as well? Well, we didn't do it in the news columns. In fact, that that that's one thing that that uh, set these editorials apart, probably from any others, in that this was our this was our own initiative on the editorial board because. You have to remember the decision had been made uh, by the county, and the fluoride was out of the water, and the news stories were over, and the thing had moved on. I mean, there wouldn't have been anybody talking about it if uh, the editorial page hadn't been talking about it. So uh, there is a difference there. I I do think it's important uh, to keep a, a strong uh, wall between uh, opinion writing and news writing. However... The fluoride issue and some other issues do do point to some shortcomings in old-fashioned news writing where you take the claim of one side and you put their claim and then you take the claim of the other side and you give them exactly equal weight because that's just not the real world if you don't add some context. So in fluoride, for example, yes, you, you can find scientists in the United States and elsewhere that say fluoride's bad for you. And you can find the CDC and scientists on the other side that say it's good for you. But but the weight, the overwhelming weight, is far on the side of the fluoride. Global warming is another sort of news issue like that. You can write news stories that say uh, global warming exists and it's a serious threat for the country and here's the problem. And you can quote another scientist right behind him and say global warming does not exist and there isn't any threat. And if you give those equal weight in a news story like you might in some other era, that in my view, doesn't really represent the, the, the accuracy of that because we know that more than 97% of scientists uh, believe that global warming is a serious threat. The Pulitzer Prize includes a, what, a medallion, a certificate, and $10,000. There's, $10, there's, a, there's a certificate uh, and there's uh, $10,000, uh, which my colleague Daniel Ruth and I will split. There were some... Brief mention early earlier on in this interview, and I, I I'd like to follow up because uh, it relates to the 2012 um, lack of an award. Are editorial writers being displaced by bloggers? Well, you'll hear hear that argument, uh, predominantly from the bloggers, but. I think it depends really on the vigorousness of your editorial page. Yes, there are some bloggers, I have no doubt, that are better than some editorial pages in some, some communities uh, because they're more aggressive. They're more, they can be clearer in what their opinion is. And uh, they might be, uh, in some cases, even more connected to the community. But I, I don't think in, in communities with vibrant newspapers and strong editorial pages that bloggers are going to replace the editorial page. Communities with vibrant newspapers. Does professional journalism then lose an impact where those things don't exist? Yes. If you don't have a vibrant newspaper in your community, that that is one of the things you are lacking. And I and I think a newspaper is is uh, vital to uh, small towns and big cities and uh, to be part of democracy because you have to have an informed electorate if you're going to have a democracy uh, with elected representatives that, that reflect the values of the community they represent. How do you reach people to, to tell them that? Well, you have to use every venue you can now. I mean, you, you can't just rely on the printed newspaper. I mean, one of the things that uh, we've done and uh, all smart newspapers are doing now, of course, is you're trying to reach readers through Facebook and Twitter and every digital platform you can. Uh, another thing that we've done that's been tried in some areas is we also have a, a free tabloid paper uh, that's, that's distributed on the streets uh, in the urban areas. And that takes news, and there is hard news in there, uh, but it's repackaged, and it's, and it's printed with snappier headlines, and the stories are a lot shorter. 
and it's also proven very successful and is making money. So I think there is uh, still an appetite for news, but you have to figure out the best platform uh, for, for readers to be able to access it. That brings us to the conclusion of this conversation. Our guest today has been Pulitzer Prize winner Tim Nickens, editor of editorials at the Tampa Bay Times. Tim, thanks for being here. Thanks so much. And we close with more music from Bruce Springsteen. For WFIU, I'm Owen Johnson. The program you just heard was recorded in July of 2013. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. James Gray is the producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.